previously in impeachment. The Democrats were swimming in evidence. Why do we have to keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper for evidence when there's like a big flag planted outside that says, I crimed? And the Republicans were looking for someone to blame. It seems as though the plan now is to throw Giuliani under the bus. What do you think, Jim? I mean, I've been waiting for Rudy Giuliani to be thrown under the bus for weeks now. Which is why this week, Congress decided to let the rest of us into their hearing room. All right, everyone, we are back with our weekly impeachment roundup. This was the first week of public impeachment hearings. We got a chance to hear from three longtime civil servants, George Kent, Bill Taylor, who is currently the charge running the Ukrainian embassy, and Marie Yovanovitch, who was serving as ambassador to Ukraine until Taylor took over for her. Each of these diplomats holds one little piece of the story of what was going on between President Trump and the president of Ukraine. Our own Jim Newell, he was in the room as this testimony went down, and that's why we let Dahlia Lithwick have the week off. I should say, we recorded this conversation just before Marie Ivanovich sat down for questioning. I'm going to talk about what happened when she did that in the second half of the show. Jim, it's just you and me this week. <laughs> I feel the pressure. You're the survivor of I impeachment. I don't have Dahlia to bail me out this week. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a lot going on in your corner of the world. So I think I think we're good. There was a, a surprising amount going on sort of behind the scenes in the room. When I, I, when I looked at the, um, I guess, the highlights or whatever afterwards, yeah, it really was pretty. It didn't show some of the commotion that was going on. So, yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah. What was the, what was it like to be in the room when these impeachment hearings opened? Well, first, and this, you know, this is going to be meaningful to maybe only 20 people in the world, but I have to say it, it was like 37 degrees in that committee room. Also, this committee room, the Ways and Means room, it's it's a maybe the largest committee room they have on the Hill. Like, I think there was a time in history when they were renovating the house and they actually conducted the house work in that room. Oh, the whole house. Yeah, the entire house. Like, they held votes and everything in that room. Was it big enough? Yeah, it was. I was actually expecting to be completely squeezed in, like couldn't move at all whatsoever. And I, I had a spacious little table. So it's like mixed mix grade from a reporter standpoint. Very cold, but plenty of space. Anyway, this is why people tuned in. <laughs> For like the WeWork yeah. kind of commentary. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the way that the Democrats and the Republicans tried to sort of arrange themselves before these hearings so that they would be at their best advantage. Let's start out with the Democrats. To make this look more nonpartisan, they made sure they reserved a lot of time for staff lawyers to involve themselves. Do you want to talk a little bit about how the, the tenor of the proceedings changed because of who was in the room and who was asking the questions? Yeah, so it actually took about three hours, I think, for other members of the committee to really start asking their own questions. And that's because of the way Democrats structured this, where it begins first with committee chair and committee ranking members making their opening statements. Then you allow the witnesses to make their opening statements. And then the chair and the ranking member each got 45 minutes to question uh, the witnesses on their own. And they couldn't yield their time to other members of the committee. So they couldn't yield it to some of the more partisan members of the committee. They could only yield it to the staff counsel, who are sort of very uh, professional. You, you can question whether some were effective or not. 
but it really sort of created the impression that this was, um, you know, not the not the sort of food fight you usually see in congressional hearings. It was a professional job. And I think that's the impression that Democrats wanted to create, you know, that this is just not Democrats on a fishing expedition, that it's that this is, you know, a process that's being done almost outside of partisan politics a little bit. Well, and then the Republicans on the other side of this, they made this other move where <laughs> they replaced someone on the committee with a more partisan member. They imported Jim Jordan to this committee basically so that he could ask all those partisan questions as, as loudly as he wanted to. Yeah, they just added Jim Jordan, um, I mean, late last week. Uh, they they even thought about adding some more partisan members like Mark Meadows or Lee Zeldin, but they couldn't really swap out three members. That would have been asking a lot of some of the Intelligence Committee members. But yeah, they wanted to make sure that Jim Jordan was on there because he's a very ferocious, very aggressive questioner. And he like completely has the president's back, you know, like we'll do anything for Donald Trump. So it, it, you could see this push and pull of Democrats trying to make sure it's nonpartisan and Republicans trying to inject partisan partisan energy into it. And I think Democrats were pretty successful there in that it took sort of, I think, about four hours for Jim Jordan to really sort of take over the hearing. And then he did. <laughs> but, you know, they, I think they really got a lot of the, the professional work out of the way early. He sounded like a carnival barker. He was just sort of getting in there and badgering people. I mean, he was so psyched. <laughs> he, he was chomping at the bit for, I mean, you could just see it. He was like rocking his chair, like waiting for his time. I mean, he just went a million words a minute. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told Ambassador Taylor that I told Mr. Morrison and I conveyed this message to Mr. Yarmouk on September 1st, 20. What this do people need to know way. about Jim Jordan to kind of understand his motivations here, like who he was in this hearing? So Jim Jordan is a very conservative lawmaker from Ohio. He was the founding chairman of the Freedom Caucus, which is the far-right conservative caucus, which, you know, for Speakers Boehner and Speaker Ryan was a real thorn in the side and really used their leverage to make sure that legislation was pushed far, far to the right to the point that, it, you know, made governing very difficult. But, I, you know, I think that, you know, why is Jim Jordan so defensive of the president? Why is the Freedom Caucus? Because it's not just Jordan, it's Mark Meadows and a lot of these really far-right conservative guys have moved away a little bit from being a... Um, conservative policy group, sort of to a, a President Trump's uh, frontline defender group now. And I think it's just that they're in the minority. They don't really have leverage over legislation anymore, but they want to be uh, the driving force still within the Republican caucus. And this is their avenue for it. Hmm. I mean, it sounds... I'm trying to think of, like, what's the phrase? Like, it just sounds like the tail wagging the dog here. Yeah. You know, I think... When we were in the room yesterday, they had two rows reserved for members of Congress who wanted to come and watch. And among Democrats, there were, I don't know, maybe uh, 10 or 20 who just sort of rotated in and out, you know, watched a portion of it and left. On the Republican side, there were a good 10 or 15 Freedom Caucus members there who were there for the entire time. Among members of the Republican Party who were not in the Freedom Caucus, I'm not sure I saw really any at all. And I think that they, you know, they don't have any qualms about defending the president on this. They are they don't see anything wrong. They are 100 percent committed to this, whereas I think a lot of Republican members are 
maybe uncomfortable with, with what the president did and don't want to go and sit in on a a hearing where there's, you know, 400 reporters who are going to ask them for their reaction after all the testimony. So I think that they have the job of being the president's, you know, chief defenders here because they're really the only ones who are signing up for it. Watching the first day of these public hearings, there was one more Congress member that Jim was keeping his eye on, Elise Stefanik. She's a Republican from New York. I wouldn't say she's a moderate necessarily, but she's considered a, a, you know, not a show horse, a workhorse, like takes the job very seriously, has criticized the president when he's gone too far. But she's like right there with Jim Jordan. I mean, after the hearing, there was a Republican press conference and she led it with Jim Jordan and she was talking about Adam Schiff's chamber of lies like has been disrupted, <laughs> you know, like the real red meat. So I'm, I'm very interested to know, um, you know, what her what her thinking on the politics of all this is. Yeah, me too. <laughs> just because, yeah, I mean, that's that is fascinating that like this has just pulled so far to one side and everyone is still just marching ahead. I, I think they just. I think they think that impeaching Donald Trump with a bipartisan vote would just be suicide for the party, and they they just have to suck it up and and stand by him. On Friday, after Jim and I spoke, it was Stefanik who seemed to take the lead for Republicans as they questioned former Ukrainian ambassador Marie Ivanovich. We'll talk about that hearing and the new evidence we heard this week after the break. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Here's something I did not expect to be talking about this week. New evidence. You know, Bill Taylor showed up on Wednesday and he came for the Democrats bearing gifts. He said, oh, you know, by the way, I've just been told about another phone call. Did this surprise you? It did. I I mean, I was wondering going in if his testimony, if he would just read what he already submitted in the deposition a couple of weeks ago which was pretty um, explosive stuff. And to people who hadn't read it or or watched coverage of it before, it would have been pretty shocking. But also just in terms of, you know, straight news coming out of the hearing, it was sort of a a repetition of what we already knew. But yeah, then he had this, you know, it was 20 pages printed out, this opening statement, and it was somewhere around page 16. He had this new piece of evidence where one member of his staff overheard the president on a call with Gordon Sondland, the EU ambassador, where apparently President Trump was pushing him to make sure that they really focus on the Biden investigations when they're they're pushing Ukraine. The member of my staff could hear President Trump on the phone asking Ambassador Sondland about the investigations. Ambassador Sondland told President Trump the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. But it's not even just the phone call, because after the phone call was over, the staff member described apparently, to Bill Taylor, that Gordon Sondland got off the phone and they had a conversation about the conversation with Trump. 
And he asked, you know, how much does Trump care about the military aid? How much does Trump care about these investigations? And Gordon Sondland apparently said, oh, he really cares about these investigations more than anything else. Right. Following the call with President Trump, the member of my staff asked Ambassador Sondland what President Trump thought about Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden, which Giuliani was pressing for. I mean, I, I think it's really bad. If, if you think what you've seen already is really bad, this is another piece of it that's really bad. So when you leave breadcrumb trails like this, I just imagine it opens up a lot of avenues for Congress to explore. Because one of the other things that Bill Taylor said is, listen, I'm a really scrupulous note keeper, but I can't give you those notes because I turn them over to the State Department and the State Department is not turning them over to you. Yeah, whoops. (laughs) Right. But then he talks about this phone call and... I imagine if I'm a member of Congress, I'm thinking, huh, phone calls I could maybe file a little subpoena and and get a hold of, right? Those records? I I think they might be able to. But I mean, what what struck me, and maybe this is cynical, but as soon as I saw that, you know, I knew exactly what Republicans would say in response to that. And sure enough, I asked a couple of of Republicans who are really involved in the process, like um, Lee Zeldin afterwards you know, what he made of that new piece of evidence. And he said, and this was a dated reference, so I didn't really understand it. But he said, it reminds me of that REO Speedwagon song. I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from another. Heard it from a friend who heard it from another you've been messing around. So again, they're saying this is all another secondhand thing. You know, someone overheard a phone call and thought they heard what Trump was saying and then passed it on to Taylor and then Taylor is passing it on to the committee. So I knew right away that they would say, you know, whatever, this isn't a witness describing directly what Trump said to them, so it doesn't matter. But what's so interesting to me about that is that those firsthand witnesses, they can't be brought in. Right. They're dismissing every person who didn't speak directly to the president and didn't hear from about a quid pro quo directly from the president and treating that all as, quote unquote, hearsay, secondhand. They don't know for sure. So you can dismiss all of that. And then they're not letting the firsthand witnesses, whether it's Mick Mulvaney or um, Rudy Giuliani, testify. So what the strategy is, is to keep President Trump at one step removed from all of the dirty business at all times. Because so long as, you know, there's one intermediary, they can always just say, well, maybe they didn't hear it correctly or they they misjudged it. So it doesn't really count. Hmm. On the Democratic side, you know, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about a quid pro quo. That is, you know, an agreement that if the Ukrainians opened up these political investigations, then U.S. military aid would flow. But this week, we started to hear Democrats test out this new phrase bribery. Right. Do you think it made any difference to have someone like Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi come out and use that bribery word instead of quid pro quo? You know, time will tell. I I do think that maybe it, at least getting away from quid pro quo is a good idea because it takes away that one Republican argument where they were saying, you know, oh, well, quid pro quos are, you know, how foreign policy is conducted. You can make aid conditional on certain agreements or whatever. Which then requires Democrats to explain that, yes, but you can't make, you know, foreign aid conditional on political assistance for yourself. 
Well, it was interesting to me, too, to see the Republicans kind of swerve out of the way of this new wording because they were rolling out this defense, which my favorite description of it was the Sideshow Bob defense. <laughs> the, it doesn't matter because, you know, the aid flowed. And the fact is that, you know, this this wasn't actual bribery. Nothing actually happened. It was attempted. And because it was attempted, it doesn't matter. I call it the Sideshow Bob defense because a Simpsons writer wrote about it in The Washington Post because this defense was used by the Sideshow Bob character on an episode of The right. Simpsons. <laughs> Convicted of a crime I didn't even commit. <laughs> attempted murder. Now, honestly, what is that? Do they give a Nobel Prize for attempted chemistry, do they? That's, it's just fascinating to me that, like, we've reached that point where the real defense now is like, well, it didn't quite happen. Right, and it ignores a lot of of details there, like that it was something they were working that, President Zelensky had a CNN interview scheduled where he was, you know, going to announce these investigations. But, you know, the whistleblower complaint had, you know, word of that spread throughout the government. You know, there's a lot of pressure coming from Congress. There was sort of a lot of smoke rising where Democrats fe- or where the administration felt like they had to, you know, release this aid. But it, and I thought what was really, you know, one of the the highlights, you know, quote unquote highlights of the of the hearing was Jim Jordan creating this entire new narrative of why the aid was held up and why it got released. You know, towards the end, when he's making his own concluding remarks, Jim Jordan said, well, when it came time to check out this new guy, you know, President Zelensky, President Trump said, let's just see if he's legit. So for 55 days, we checked him out. He was, in fact, legit and the real deal and a real change. And guess what? They told the president, he's a reformer, release the money. And that's exactly what President Trump did. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's this la-la land excuse for, despite what you have all these witnesses saying was really on President Trump's mind, they're just saying, well, you know, he just wanted to know if this guy was the real deal. Like, (laughs) it really was one of the most naive things I've, like, ever heard in a congressional hearing. Well, at the end of this week, this is where I landed, which is we heard about this new phone call, which is another sort of breadcrumb that leads right to Trump, because the idea is that Trump was on the phone and Trump was expressing interest in these investigations. And I think that that phone call, it really it puts the pressure next week on the ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, who's the one person that both sides of this, the Republicans and the Democrats, have some beef with. He's shown that he can, you know, change his testimony a little bit. He's already modified it a little bit. He's a Republican, but he's a political appointee. He seems to be playing kind of both sides of the fence. And so I think this week really sets us up for next week, when on Wednesday we'll have Gordon Sondland in, and it'll be really interesting to see what he says publicly. Yeah, I, the the Sondland testimony is going to be huge. I mean, there's, there's going to be a lot of, of people testifying next week. In, in open hearing. But Sondland on Wednesday, all of this new information that Bill Taylor brought forward is going to be run by him. And it's going to be, a, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see, you know, what he, you know, what sort of lawyered explanation he comes up with for, you know, denying this. I think that's really going to be a turning point. And because he really is, I mean, for all this talk about, you know, secondhand third-hand, fourth-hand witnesses. I mean, he is the the closest thing to a first-hand witness that they have. And 
that's why you see him lawyering up his statements and amending his testimony and leaving wiggle room because he really is the one on whom the most pressure is here, I think. It became clear just how much pressure Sondland might be feeling when the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine sat down to testify on Friday. Marie Yovanovitch spoke in detail about what it felt like to be disparaged by President Trump himself. And then, while she was testifying, the president weighed in on Twitter. Ambassador Yovanovitch, uh, as we sit here testifying, the president is attacking you on Twitter. Um, And I'd like to give you a chance to respond. I'll read part of one of his tweets. Everywhere Marie Yovanovitch went turned bad. What effect do you think that has on other witnesses' willingness to come forward and expose wrongdoing? Well, uh, it's very intimidating. It's designed to intimidate, is it not? I, I mean, I can't speak to what the president is trying to do, but I think the effect is to be intimidating. Friday afternoon, Yovanovitch left the hearing room to a round of applause. But as the evidence piles up that the president was pressuring Ukraine to help him with his political goals, the question's becoming, just how far will the White House go to protect Trump? We we talked a little bit last week about whether Rudy Giuliani's could be thrown under the bus. And I think this is the strategy if, you know, they want to dismiss everyone who heard things secondhand and not allow firsthand witnesses to testify But if a firsthand witness does testify and does spill the beans, they're going to get thrown under the bus. I mean, I think that's the emergency valve in this testimony here and say that they were freelancing or they misunderstood the president or something here. So you're saying if Gordon Sondland comes forward and says, yes, I had phone calls with President Trump and he said, I want these investigations and we're holding up the aid. Otherwise, you're saying if he does that, the Republican strategy, you think, will just be like, Sorry, we're cutting you off, buddy. This was all you. Yeah, I think so. You know, you wrote that we're going to find out who's more effective by the number of further hearings Democrats decide to hold after this round. So what do we know about how aggressively they're going to be pushing forward here? Well, they're, they're really taking it one week at a time. I mean, this week they announced a ton of hearings for next week. And I think if, you know, if they find that this is really having an effect on the American people and that there's a there's an interest in having more, then maybe they have a few more weeks of open hearings. If they sort of feel like, well, they've checked the box and, and things aren't really moving one way or another, then, you know, maybe then they'll proceed. I mean, they are still, I guess there is still new evidence arising. I mean, there is that new revelation from Taylor and they're going to be deposing that staff member this week. So, you know, they may have to then do a few more hearings. But I think they would still like to have this done by the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, the original schedule was, let's get impeachment over with by Christmas. That seems very optimistic, almost impossible at this point. Yeah, well, the original one was get done by Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving's like in like two minutes. So, you know, they're not going to get that done. I don't know. I, I, I could see it happening. It'll just be interesting to see after next week, because that's when they really will have most of the main uh, witnesses they've deposed through congressional testimony if they feel like they need to come back for more. Thank you, Jim. Yep. Thanks, guys. Jim Newell is our senior politics writer here at Slate. And that is our show. 
What Next is produced by Jason DeLeon, Mary Wilson, Mara Silvers, and Danielle Hewitt. Allison Benedict provides excellent editorial guidance to us this week and every week. You can find me on Twitter when I'm not here in your earbuds. I'm at Mary's desk. All right. Talk to you next week.